Well, hey, I'm excited for today because um, this sort of, uh, it's been brewing in me for a while. We're starting something brand new today, new sermon series, um, and it's going to start today and lead us all the way till Easter. So Easter is, uh, is sort of ahead of us now as a church, and we're going to sort of be camped out here for a while, and I'm excited because I've been kind of thinking about it and praying about it, and, um, and I really do feel like I've learned a lot um, uh, this passage that we're going to look at from Acts chapter 2, I've learned a lot um, just by restudying it and re-looking at it. And I think it has a lot to say about what kind of church we want to be together. So um, I'm looking forward to it. Um, does anybody have any bad habits? Raise your hand if you have any bad habits. Everybody should have some sort of a finger raise because we know. Come on. All right. So here's what we're going to do. One at a time. We're going to have everybody come up here on the mic. No. Um, Okay, it, we all have some bad habits, right? We totally do. I, my, I, I have several. Just ask my wife about them. She'll tell you all about them. Um, but the one that's most obvious is I'm a nail biter. Any, any other nail biters out there? All right, so it's, it's brutal. I mean, it started when I was young, and I just, and I don't even bite just the nails. I like bite like, like everything around the nail too. It's just, it's just bad. And, uh, and it's kind of embarrassing, and, um, and I've really tried to, like, to, to stop. You know, they, they do that fingernail polish stuff that tastes all gross. I tried that when I was in middle school or high school. Totally didn't work. I just, like, blew right through it still. Um, my mom used to do acrylic nails for, for, for some gals, and so I had her literally in high school. She put on acrylic nails and then, like, filed them down so it just looked like, you know, regular Brooks nails. And... Those were even better to bite off. Seriously, like I just chewed through those. Um, literally, I was at a conference one time, this like church sort of conference, where they had somebody there that was praying for healing over people, like people who were sick. And, and they were saying, hey, if you have anything at all, come to the front and you just get prayed for. And it was one of those moments where I was like, I took stock, I took inventory of my body. I was like, I was kind of hoping that I, there was like something wrong so I could go get prayed for. Um, that's, did I say that out loud? That's weird. I don't know. That doesn't make sense. But, you know, I was like, oh, I'm not sick. Um, but I thought, well, they, they might pray to, like, have me stop biting my nails. Like, <laughs> that wouldn't hurt to ask. And so I literally went up there like, hey, could you pray, like, over me to have me stop biting? And they looked at me, like, kind of funny. Um, but uh, they prayed and, lay, you know, they prayed over me and didn't work because <laughs> I, I just, like, still do it. Um, we all have some bad habits. We have some good habits, too. And I've been reading a lot about habits and how they get formed um, because the psychology behind habits is really, really fascinating. And there's this pioneer of, of, in the field. His name is a French guy named Leon Dumont. Can you say Leon? Leon. Dumont. And Leon Dumont has done tons of research and, and how habits are formed. And, you know, I, I read a ton in these last few months. And I'm just pulling out the, the big rocks, you know, like the big stuff that I want you to because it's going to sort of shape sort of what we're talking about today and for the rest of our, our sermon series all the way till Easter. But here's, here's what he discovered. He discovered that we shape our habits at the beginning, but then after that, our habits shape us. It's really interesting. At the beginning, we start some rhythms and habits, and, the, and they, become, you know, they become just second hat. You know, they just become things we do. But then it switches, and those habits actually start forming us. Um, like, for instance, with a violin, when you have a freshly made violin, it has a certain sound and, and um, the, the, you know, the wood is just sort of like the, you know, whatever tree they, they, they got it from. But once you start to play a violin, and especially over years and years and years and decades, literally the, the wood of a violin takes on a different, 
a different um, like shape. And it's different between any other violin because it sort of takes on the properties of like the notes and the kind of playing that was done on that violin. That's why the sound changes over time. It's really fascinating. But in the same way, we're, we're the same. Like we start habits and we build, we have them in our lives, but then our habits really start to sort of change us and influence us. Um, habits can be a really, really good thing. I mean, we all have some habits, some things that we do without thinking, um, and, the, and it saves us time. Like, for instance, um, you often don't think about driving home because you've done it so many times. It's just automatic. That's why, like, before you leave work, you tell yourself, hey, I need to stop by Albertsons and get that thing. And then before you know it, you're just, you're like, you're in your driveway already. <laughs> and you're like, ah, I meant to go to the store. It's because you go into autopilot, Right. We've all had that experience. Um, a good ha- you know, habits can be good because it saves us time. Habits can be good because in times of, of turmoil or, you know, in times where things are kind of, there's lots of change, habits can be, habits can be like anchoring. They can be rooting. That's why, that's why kids especially, it's really good for, for kids to have uh, rhythms and routines because in kind of like a crazy changing world for a kid, it's good to have routines. It brings some safety. And so, you know, good habits do that for us. It's not, habits aren't a bad thing. But here's what you know too, is that habits are very powerful and habits can be very destructive. Some of us have some habits that, that, that we've wrestled with for so long and they can be incredibly destructive. And so what are, you know, what are we supposed to do with all that? Well, you know, they, they've done tons of research about how you sort of get rid of bad habits. And here's what they've discovered is that, um, and they call it habit replacement, habit replacement. And it basically means to change a habit that you don't want you must replace it with the behavior that you do want. That makes sense, right? If you want to get rid of a bad habit, you have to sort of replace it with a good habit. It's not good enough to look at that bad habit and say, bad habit, stop it, don't do that anymore. And you just sort of use your willpower to try harder. Um, Usually it doesn't work. Usually you have to replace it with a new habit. Some of you guys will remember uh, just recently I had a beard and my wife uh, my wife observed that I wasn't biting my fingernails very much at all when I had the beard. And the reason why is because I was chewing on my beard. <laughs> That's why. I, like, I just couldn't, I was just like, it, was just, it would just happen. I would just kind of like chew on it. My fingernails were growing great. It's because I was chewing on the beard, right? And then when the beard went away, guess what? Back to the nails. But it's an example of how, you know, you can replace other bad habits with, with new habits. And that's one of the things that they, uh, that they um, encourage people to do and to, in order to get, bad habit, or to, to get rid of bad habits. In other words, carrots work better than sticks. Carrots work better than sticks. Instead of looking at a habit and just trying to beat it with a stick, you, you put a new carrot out in front of it and try to start something new. All right, that makes sense. Um, and then the other thing that, again, isn't new, but it's, you know, it's in the research about habits is that starting new habits happens easier with others. Happens easier with others. And that's, it's incredibly clear when it comes to like trying to work out, trying to get in shape. Um, you can easily, you know, you can get up in the morning and go to the gym on your own, but, but it's, it can be really hard. When you have a workout buddy, when you have somebody that's going to meet you there, that's going to like shame you on Facebook if you don't show up, you know, um, you, you, it gets you up, it gets you going. And, you know, that's so habits are easily formed in community, in groups. And those are some things we all, we all sort of know. Um, but here's, here's the thing. Here's where it bears on our, on our conversation, our discussion today, today is this. is With that in mind, remember that God, God made us. That God made you. He knows you. He knows how you work. He knows how our habits work. 
And so it's not a surprise, it's not a surprise, I don't think it should be a surprise, that when Jesus shows up and he's teaching us how to, how to be new, how to be a new kind of human, how to be a new kind of community, that when Jesus shows up and teach, he doesn't just teach just philosophical theory, but so much of what Jesus teaches his disciples to do are, are new habits, new practices, new hands-on learning stuff. And he teaches them how to do that. And it's not a surprise that over, um, over the course of, of, of church history, over the course of human beings trying to follow Jesus, um, is, is the church has incorporated some, some really beautiful rhythms and habits. And um, we don't use this word a lot, but, but rituals. That there's these sort of rhythms and habits and rituals and sort of like hands-on things that you do in groups especially, but which is with your body, some like things that we come back to over and over again. That um, actually uh, form us and shape us in a really, really beautiful way. And what we're going to do is this. For these next few weeks that's going to sort of lead us to Easter is we're going we're gonna to sort of pull out some ancient church habits, some ancient church practices, some rhythms. And we're going to see just sort of how those got started and why they got started. We're going to sort of look at maybe why in the world don't we do, like why don't we do those now as much? Or how come maybe some, they've lost some of their luster perhaps? Or maybe you didn't even know that they existed, but they're there. But there are these new habits that perhaps if we were to sort of adopt them again and, and, and sort of work them into our lives again, that it would start uh, uh, something new. It would start some new habits and it would push out some, some old habits, some things that we just want to get rid of and it would replace those and make, just bring us into this new system, uh, season of life and vibrancy when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our community together. So we're going to pull out some of these, some of these ancient church practices um, and we're going to sort of look at them and, and, uh, and then that's going to lead us to the season called Lent. And Lent is the season in the church calendar that sort of precedes Easter. And we're going to sort of walk through Lent as a church. Um, and that's going to be brand new. So here, listen, I just want to say, if you're sort of new to church and you're kind of here and you're kind of checking it out, I want you to say, again, we're proud of you. Thanks for taking a risk to come to church. I hope you have a great experience. Um, I, uh, I think you're here just at the right time. We're starting something brand new. And you might have a no context for, you know, all this stuff that we're going to talk about. Like you've, and you, but you've seen it. And you, see, you know, like there's this communion and there's water baptism. And there's this fasting thing. What is that, you know? And I hope that just if, we, you, if you keep coming, that you're going you're gonna to get some appreciation for what some of those things are. And it might be brand new. For some of you, you grew up in church. And maybe you grew up in a liturgical church, a very sort of... Uh, you know, a church that was really committed to a lot of these rhythms and practices. Perhaps you loved it. Perhaps it just really fed your soul. Or perhaps you felt like over time you just started going through the motions. You just started doing it and it just became this empty thing for you. And so, you know, and so you said, ah, forget all that stuff. And maybe that's one of the reasons why coming to a church like Westside was refreshing. Because it didn't feel like there was this sort of like rigid, you got to stand up, sit down, pray this prayer, do this. And you felt like, you felt like it more, you felt like it was more free. Um, and, we're, and I'm so glad that we've created an environment like that. 
But maybe just some of that stuff has lost its, lost its shine for you. And maybe perhaps going through this together, we can, we can shine, pull some of those things out of the garage and shine those things up again. And maybe it'll start some brand new things, brand new things, brand new, brand new ideas, brand new rhythms and habits, not just for you, but for you and your family. So anyways, that's what we're going to do. That's sort of the set in the stage. And I want to take you to the book of Acts. Um, it's in the New Testament, in the second half of your Bible, it's, it's, the, it's when Jesus steps onto the scene, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, those are the eyewitness, eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, and then, then the book of Acts is next. Now, it's not Acts body spray, Acts, all right? It's A-C-T, Acts. It means the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, the author of Acts is Luke, from Matthew, Mark, Luke. He wrote Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. He was a doctor, and he went around, and he interviewed all the eyewitnesses and put it together for us. And the book of Acts is this story of this early church. What happened um, to them after Jesus died and rose again, and everything changed? And what did they do, and where did they go, and what did they talk about? That's what the book of Acts is about. And so just to set the stage for the book of Acts... um, as at the beginning is Jesus has come, he's, he's lived, he, he, he's pursued us, he's come in, in flesh, and then he dies on the cross, he pays, sort of carries our penalty on the cross. Um, and I know that's like a, just a tiny little sentence to try to explain something so huge and mysterious, but Jesus sort of, he dies for our sins and pay, pays for those on the cross, and then three days later he rises again, and the whole city of Jerusalem is turned upside down. I mean, everyone is, everyone is just in, they can't believe that Jesus is alive. And they, they're seeing Jesus all around the city. And, uh, and it just, this church just gets, just gets birthed. It gets launched. And it's, it's an exciting time. And before Jesus, he gets his, his disciples together and he says, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to give you something that's going to enable you to be my followers, is the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Uh, In a way, it's like like my presence in sort of like a different way. I'm not just going to, I'm not going to be with you anymore. I'm going to be in you in a way. And so they're promised the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that here's what the Holy Spirit's going to enable you to do. It's going to enable you to be a witness, to be a witness to the world. And so they're hanging out on this uh, high festival day called Pentecost. And it would have been a time when tons of visitors would be flooding the city of Jerusalem. Just tons and tons of people. Just picture like um, family reunions times thousands. You know, just people just from all over the, the, the world, just all different languages, Jewish people who are here. And just imagine you're walking down the street and you're, every alleyway you look down is just packed with people and they're cooking food and you smell the smells. And it's just, you know, this big celebration, these people all together. And these followers of Jesus, and there's not that many of them at this point. There's just sort of like a supersized sort of number of them, and they're gathered together, and something happens. They have this experience where they're given the Holy Spirit in a way that they hadn't had before. And I want to read it to you. It's from Acts chapter 2. Here's what happens. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. It's a really 
they have this really profound experience where it seems like this sort of like fire comes and like separates and you know they would have known that fire sort of in the old testament represents God's presence you know like remember Moses and the burning bush it's like God's presence is there so it's this beautiful way of saying that God's presence now is 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 on them and in them and every single one of them and the Holy Spirit is just, it's this new sort of empowering thing that happens. And what happens next is they start proclaiming. They start speaking and they're speaking in all these languages and all these people from the city who, are, who hear their own languages being spoken and they're like, what's going on? And so it gathers a crowd. And what happens next is Peter, one of the apostles, Peter, he steps up, you know, just picture he like gets on, you know, he's a big group of people and they're all gathered and he gets up on a chair or something and he gives a sermon. It's actually one of the first sort of post-resurrection Christian sermons that we have is recorded in the book of Acts chapter two. And I'm not gonna read it to you this morning, but Peter, he preaches this message. He basically says, hey, listen, this is who Jesus was. He's the promised Messiah that we've been waiting for. Here's what happened. You killed him, he died on a cross, but guess what? Death does not have the final word because he's alive. And everything's changed now. That was his message. And then here's what happens. It says, and this is verse 41, it says, and those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How effective was this sermon? <laughs> Very effective, empowered by the Holy Spirit and suddenly the church grows by 3,000 people. Um, it's exciting. It's like, you know, how do we do this? How do we orchestrate this? You know, how do we, how do we administrate this? You know, there would have been a lot of challenges there, but the church is, is growing. Here's what I want you to see. Is remember Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to be given to you so you can be a witness, a witness. And notice what happens first. First is they witness in the way that you would typically expect somebody to witness. They witness with their mouth. They witness verbally. They speak these languages. People hear it. They come gather Peter steps up, preaches a sermon, and, they, and he sort of witnesses. And that's the, sort of the typical way that we would picture somebody witnessing, you know. But then, then, in the very next verse, then Luke takes some special care to then give us now a little bit of insight into how this early church actually functioned as a group, as a community. And here's what I want you to understand, is Luke is telling us that we have the Holy Spirit so that we can be witnesses, not just in word, but also one of the main ways that the early church witnessed and proclaimed the good news wasn't just in what they spoke, it was in the, how the community functioned itself. That the community itself, that the content and the quality of the community itself was itself a witness, a witness to the rest, to everyone else there, that th this is true. And see, this is how Jesus came to us. Jesus came to us in word and deed. He came preaching and he came healing. And so that's a model for how we get to be the church today. And this is what is happening in Acts 2. They're, they're witnessing in word, but also in deed, in the way that they actually function as a community. See, if we as the church have a mission in the world, and if, we just, if it's just all word but no deed, then we're just talk, right? If all we do is preach and proclaim, but we're not actually um, helping and caring and meeting needs, um, then that's not good. Or, but what, if we, but what if it's no word but all deed? So maybe we're doing some really, really great things and that's good, but there's no, there's no message under it. 
We need both. And Jesus came to us both. And in the beginning here, we see that the church witnessed in both, in word and deed. The community itself was a witness. And what did this community look like? Let's read it. It's so beautiful and so informative for us. Here's what it says. And they devoted themselves. This is chapter 2, starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So one of the coolest, just, just clearest pictures of how this early church sort of functioned together. Now, don't get me wrong. It seems like it's all rainbows and skittles at this point. If you just give it another chapter and a half, then like people's humanity starts coming out. And, you know, there's some challenges and there's some difficult things. But right at the beginning here, we see some really, really cool things. We see that they're adopting, they're adopting some new habits and, and habits in the midst of their community. And so in verse 42, it says that they devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to a couple things, right? Um, you know, we all sort of devote ourselves to some things. We, when you devote yourself to something, it's something that you do regularly, it's something that you care about, it's something that you assign great value to. Um, it's usually stuff that we do every day, all right? So, um, you know, those would be some like typical habits and things. Like for instance, um, some of you are devoted to brushing your teeth every day, right? Everybody should be like, yeah, you should be devoted to flossing every, no, I'm just kidding. Nobody does that every day. We're proud of you if you do though. Um, there's a, plenty of things that you do every day that you're devoted to. And, and in fact, you can tell a lot about somebody by looking at what they're devoted to when you see sort of their rhythms and their rituals and their habits. And we all have them. You can tell a lot about someone, about really what matters to them. And what we see is that the church adopts some habits and practices and rhythms right at the very beginning. And it, and it shapes who they are as a people. And this is so helpful for us because if we have any chance of, of continuing the mission of Jesus in our world, then I hope that we are faithful to proclaim the message, to be witnesses verbally, but also that our community here together, that, that we're adopting these habits and these things that shape us and, and transform us. And it makes sense because we've all sort of had things in our lives where we've adopted sort of like a worldview, way of looking at things, and it sort of shaped who you were. For me, I was thinking about in my life, like what I, like how to describe this, um, these, these like rituals and rhythms and habits that like shape you. Um, the only thing I could think of was, um, I, I, was uh, I was, I played soccer when I was in middle school, and I thought I wanted to be a soccer player. But when I became a freshman in high school, um, my brother was a senior in high school, and my brother was a football god. Okay, he was, he was just at the top of the food chain as far as like football players at my high school. And, and then he went on to play uh, football at Washington State University. He was, he was a great football player. He was fast and he was strong. And I didn't feel pressure from my parents or my brother to, to try to be like him. I just, I, there was like something in me that I felt like 
I'm, I, should be, I should be like him. There's, I felt this sort of internal pressure. So in freshman year, I started lifting. I started lifting weights. And right away, it just, it just took to me, and I was, I was devoted. I was committed. I was in the gym after school, every day after school, for, for a while, for a couple hours. And me and just like a group of buddies, we lifted, and we got big. <laughs> We got strong. And it wasn't just that. I mean, I adopted and I just sort of came into this world. I, you know, I, I, I subscribed to like Muscle Mag, you know, like I was, so I had my Muscle Magazine deal. And then, you know, and, and then uh, I was taking my creatine, you know, it's like this like supplement stuff. I had like the shakes, you know, and I was like drinking the protein shakes and I was just in it. And there's this whole language that you adopt, you know, when you're in that world and there's like certain things you do and say that only that group of people recognize. And I was like becoming my identity. This who I was you walk into a room and you're like like oh I'm gonna go study now you know or you like you walk in and you're like you're like like check it out you know I'm here you know there's just like certain stuff that you do like when you're in that world that you're just like that, that nobody else gets and think you're weird like you guys are thinking right now but you know like in a certain context it makes complete sense and that's what was going on for me and I thought that that's who I was and then the funny thing is I graduated high school and um, and by the way, I was really strong and really huge, but slow, like really slow. I was not a good football player. I kind of overdid it on the lifting. But what was funny is I got to college and I realized that that, was, that wasn't really me. It was, that, that was like the old me and I sort of, you know, changed. But we all have this sort of the same example in your life of something, what it was. I don't know if it was middle school for you or high school or college or whatever. Maybe it was the 80s and, you know, maybe it was... Uh, you know, maybe it was like punk, you know, maybe you had like the, the, uh, you colored your hair and you had the, what am I trying to say? Mo, thank you. <laughs> I was trying to say faux hawk, but that, no, 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 it's the mohawk. It's the original faux hawk. Um, you, you had a mohawk, you know, I don't know what it was, but you sort of fit yourself into a group of people and you had your own language. You had your own sort of way of seeing the world. Maybe you were a skater or maybe you were a goth person or maybe, or maybe you just listened to a lot of Nirvana, right? And you were just like, you know, maybe that was your deal. Um, but every, every single one of those sort of cultures, it comes with rhythms. It comes with habits. It shapes who you are. What sort of rhythms and habits shaped this church, this early church? What habits should shape a church, any church, in today's world today? This passage mentions four things that this early church devoted themselves to. Just four things it mentions here. Here's what they are. It says, first, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So that's the first thing they did. They were committed to learners. They would gather in, in the temple courts. They'd gather in different places, and they would, they would, the, the apostles would, would teach. And there's a reason why this shows up as number one. We'll get back to you in a second. And then the next thing that they were devoted to was they were devoted to, the, it's in Acts, it says fellowship. It says fellowship. Now, fellowship is kind of a churchy word that you don't really use outside of church, typically. Like, you don't call your buddy, like your non-Christian buddy, and be like, hey, can we fellowship tonight? You know, like, it, just, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't really fit there necessarily. But in church, we use that word a lot. Like, hey, that was good fellowship. Let's fellowship together. And it can mean hanging out, but it means more than that. The word that, that Luke actually uses is this word that if you've been around church, you've probably heard before. It's this Greek word koinonia, koinonia. And the word koinonia means hanging out, but it means way more than hanging out. It's this deep, deep sharing of life. It's a deep, deep sharing of stuff. It's a 
deep, deep sharing of time and resources, but even more than just like, you know, stuff that you share. It's just a deep sharing of community that you have together. So they had fellowship together. And part of that certainly was hanging out. And then the third thing they committed themselves to was the breaking of bread. They committed themselves to the breaking of bread. And this is beautiful because this early church, they just love to get together and eat together. Isn't that great? Like they would just gather and eat. They just wanted to be with one another. And there's something spiritual about when you eat together, right? It's this beautiful, profound statement of, of camaraderie and connectedness when you eat together. But it was also in this context where they would take communion together because that's another way of sort of talking about taking communion is, is breaking bread together. And so usually probably both those things were taking place at the same time. They'd gather for food, but they would also take communion together. They'd remember the Lord's Supper together as a group and they would come back to that over and over and over again and then the last thing that it says that they were committed to was to prayer was to prayer or your your translation might say the the prayers the prayers but remember these are Jewish people and so they would have already been praying the this this prayer called the Shema three times a day morning noon and, and night it was you know may the Lord bless you and keep you and they would say those prayers they would pray through a lot of the Psalms and then remember, Jesus shows up and teaches them how to pray. And so now they're, they're incorporating Lord's Prayer stuff in there. And then later on, even in church history, they're, they're forming these creeds. And so churches would get together and even recite these creeds. But they would get together and they would pray together. And maybe another word that we could use to describe what they were doing there was worship. They were gathering together to, to worship the Lord together, to pray together. Here's four just practices that the church adopted. It seems kind of simple, right? Like this is church. This is what church is. It seems, it kind of seems kind of simple. Um, but, uh, but there's so much that we can learn from so many of these things that they started doing. Um, and the word that we most sort of use to describe what was taking place here is the word disciple. Disciple. If you've been in church uh, for a length of time, you probably heard the word disciple, that we want to be disciples of Jesus, or there's a discipleship class coming up. You know, we use those, those language. And now that word disciple isn't found in this text from Acts 2 that we read, but it's found elsewhere in some places. And one of the most notable places that it's found is, remember this moment where Jesus, he's getting his disciples together, he's, gonna, he's, he's, gonna, he's promising them the Holy Spirit, you know, but here's what he says, and it's, it's, it's known as the Great Commission. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you, I, I'm, I'm sending you out. I want you to go uh, and make disciples of all nations. And I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. Jesus says that this, this sort of process of us building these rhythms and habits that shape us and, 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 uh, and transform us, that it's centered and built on Jesus and that whole process is one word that you could use to describe it is the word disciple, that we're, that we're, that we're disciples and we're, we're growing in our discipleship. We're growing as disciples. Now, can we go back to that one, uh, the list of the different things they devoted themselves to? Because there's one thing I want you to, to understand is there's a reason that it's in this order. It's in this order for a reason. Because if you think about it, number two and number three, if, if, Luke had told us that what they did was just number two and number three, that they got together for koinonia and breaking of bread. You know, that wouldn't necessarily make the Christian church super unique. There's a lot of other groups that get together and they have deep sharing of one another. And there's a lot of other groups that get together and eat food together, you know. 
Um, and those things are awesome and those things are, are, are great. But just by themselves, though, by themselves, then it's sort of like a club. It's sort of like a group of people sort of with, sort of, uh, with similar affinities, you know, that are getting together. Like the Toastmasters Club, you know, or something like that. The reason why it's given us in this order is because this first one is so important that it comes first. The, what they did first and primarily is they got together and they were reminded of the story over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. They're reminded of this, of this story of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And if that's true, the apostles, what they would do when they would gather together is they would proclaim the good news, we, the word, we use the word gospel, they would proclaim the good news that Jesus did everything for us, he died for our sins, he rose again. But then if that's true, then that has millions of little implications for what that means for you and for me. It has millions of implications of what it means for how you work and how you play, and how you view money, and how you view sex, and how you view your time, and how you view your resources, and how you parent, and how you are single, and how you're married, and everything. If Jesus really is who he says he is, and if he died for our sins, and if he really did rise again, then it has all sorts of implications that we root our story in that story over and over and over again. And that's what they were doing. They were rooting their lives in the apostles' teaching, reminding their own hearts over and over again of this is who I am. This is who God is. This is the world that I live in. This is what truly matters. And can you see how that is the reason why that one comes first? Because that story informs everything else. See, they had deep sharing in koinonia, not because it's just that's the right thing to do. They had deep sharing in koinonia. Why? Because the story, the foundational story of those Christians was that in Jesus, we have a God who gives, who gives, who gives, who is exceedingly generous. See, if that's the foundation story, then that informs how you give and how you serve, and how you leverage your life. You see, it's all rooted in there. And these practices that the early church started to adopt. Um, I just want to, in the time we have this morning, we're going to take communion this morning. And, and we, we at Westside, we take communion often. Not every Sunday, but most Sundays. And so as an example, I just want to take this practice, this practice of taking communion together, remembering the Lord's Supper. I just want to, I just want to real quickly just unpack it so that you have an, an example, an idea of these, one of these rituals that we're supposed to come back to time and time again. And just like anything, just like anything you do often, it can easily, very quickly lose its luster. It can easily, quickly just lose its shape and you can just kind of go through the motions. And Paul, what he's about to tell us and what he told the Corinthian church, is he so wants us to connect with the deeper meaning while we incorporate taking communion into our lives as one of these forming habits that shapes us and molds us. Here's what he says. This is from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, I'm reading from the, a, a transliteration called The Message because I really like how it says it. It says this. Here's Paul talking to some people about communion. He says, let me go over with you exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it's so centrally important. I received my instructions from the master himself and passed them on to you. 
The master, Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, he took bread. Having given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he did the same thing with the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood, my covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. He's retelling them the story. They've heard this so many times, but he's telling them again. And he's telling them again. And then he says this. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your, in your words and actions the death of the master. You're entering into the story. Every time you come to this meal, uh, you're entering into the story again and again and again. And he says this, you will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like the part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance that you want to be a part of? He says, he says no, of course not. He says, examine your motives, test your heart, come to the, I love this part, come to, your, to this meal in holy awe. This is one of the early things that the early church did when they would gather is they would reenact this supper again and again and again. And we as a church, again and again, why do we do that? It's because every time you go through it again, every time you're bringing that story and rooting your life deeper and deeper and deeper into it, you're reminding your heart, you're telling that story over and over again. This is who I am. This is the kind of God that I serve. This is what the world is all about. This is what my time is best, how it's best spent. I just made a list of some things. Some, remember, if communion is like a diamond, there's so many different facets. We couldn't even get to the bottom of it. Here's a couple things. Communion is a celebration of victory. When you celebrate something, guess what's usually there? Food. Amen? Right? I'm preaching to somebody here. Super Bowl Sunday, there's better be food at your house if you're having people over, okay? Um, there's food at celebrations, and so we're celebrating Jesus. He's the king, and so there's, there's food there. It's a statement of thanksgiving. The word Eucharist comes from a Greek word that means thanks, thanksgiving, that we give him thanks. It's a reenactment of redemption. It's a reenactment of redemption, that we're, we're reenacting this meal because we're reminding ourselves that he has redeemed us through his blood, through his shed blood and his broken body for us on the cross. Um, it's a proclamation of allegiance, like how we used to say the Pledge of Allegiance before school, you know? Coming to this meal over and over again is an act of allegiance. It's saying, yes, that story, that's my story. It's a declaration of dependence. Food is vital. You need food to survive. And so you, when you come to the table, it's like you're saying, God, just like I need food to survive, I need your grace to survive. I need you so desperately today. It's a declaration of dependence. It's, it's an expression of family. We have family meals. There's food. So in a, in a way, we're sort of like a big family coming to the family table together. There's unity here, even though we're very diverse. Um, it's an examination of heart. Lord, is there anything I need to be aware of in here? You forgave me. Is there anybody that I need to forgive? God, would you just help me? Would you open my eyes to see? It's an examination of heart and it's a reception of provision and grace. So when you bring that food into your body, it's like you're saying, God, as I bring this into my body, I'm asking, Lord, would you, I want to receive your grace into my body. I receive that grace. I re receive the provision that you're giving me today. Do you see? Do you see how 
We can't even get to the bottom of communion. It is so beautiful. Just like a picture paints, what? A thousand words, right? Communion paints even more of what the story is. That's why we come to it over and over and over again. Um, not quite yet. In a second, I'm going to have the band come up. And we're going to take communion together. And maybe, maybe this is just a good, maybe you'll come, maybe you'll come at communion in a, in a new way this morning. Maybe it'll just be alive to you again. It's this habit that we come back to over and over again so that our stories can be grounded and rooted and centered on Jesus. Because if it's not, if it's not, if it's not rooted in there, then your identity will be rooted in something else. Because your identity does need to be rooted in something. And if it's not rooted in the grace that Jesus gives, it'll be rooted in consumerism. It'll be rooted in performance. It'll be rooted in your body image. It'll be rooted in all sorts of things that are brutal taskmasters. You will never be good enough for those things. You will never be loved through those things. You will always feel anxious and worried if your identity is rooted in those things. And so how about we adopt new practices and rhythms to build our lives on that tell us the truth about who he is and tells us the truth about who you are and I am. That's where we'll be camped out for a bunch of weeks as a church, and I'm excited.